Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. The text for the sermon today is taken from Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 4 and verse 9. Hear the word of God. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his holy word to our hearts. Dear friends, the words of our text form part of the final conclusion of Paul's letter to the Philippians. As we observed the last time, this conclusion consists of two parts or two commands. First, there is a summons to godly thinking in verse 8. And here the apostle commands the Philippians to meditate or think about, reckon with, or ponder six things. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, and whatever things are of good report. And then so as not to miss anything, he adds this, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The second part of this conclusion comes in verse 9. Here we have a summons to godly practice. The apostle writes, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. The first is a command to think right thoughts. The second is a command to do right things. Now, as we observed the last time, these two commands are not merely the last in a series. Together, they constitute the two great pillars of the Christian life. The whole of the Christian life can be summarized in these two words, thinking and doing. As Christians, we are to think right things and do right things. What is more, these two things go together. You cannot have one without the other. What is even more, the one will lead to and the other will flow from the other. Right thoughts will lead to right actions. And right actions are the inevitable and necessary product of right thoughts. And with that in mind and the help of the Lord, let's consider these words under the theme, Paul's summons to godly practice. And we'll consider, first of all, the appointed means of regulating godly practice. Secondly, the expected response to implementing godly practice. And thirdly, the precious promise for motivating godly practice. First, then, the appointed means of conveying godly practice. Apostle Paul, in our text, writes, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. Now, if we look at this verse carefully, we notice that it consists of two sets of word pairs. The first word pair is learned and received. This relates to the teaching of the Apostle Paul, the things that Paul taught among them while he was with them. The second word pair is heard and saw, and this relates to Paul's manner of life. The word heard 
refers not only to what they heard from him, but what they heard about him from others. And the word saw refers to what they observed themselves while Paul was with them. Now, what are the things that Paul is referring to here? What are the things that the Philippians learned and received and heard and saw in the Apostle Paul? Well, there are some who say that Paul was referring here to the things he mentioned in verse 8. So what Paul is saying is this. The things that are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, the things of virtue and the things that are praiseworthy, meditate on these things which are the things you have learned and received and heard and saw in me. But it's also possible to interpret Paul more generally as referring to the things that he taught them when he was with them. That would include certainly the things mentioned in verse 8, but it would not be limited to these things. But whatever the case, the Apostle Paul commands the Philippians to do them. They were not just to think about them, they were not just to meditate on them, they were not just to fill their minds with them, they were actually to put them into practice. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And all the emphasis falls on that word, do. And we learn here what is the divinely appointed means for conveying godly conduct. It is the minister of the word of God. The task of the minister of the word of God is not only to model and teach godly thinking, it is also to model and teach godly conduct. And he is to do this in two ways. First of all, by teaching various classes, but especially by preaching. Preaching should not be a lecture, but an important part of preaching is teaching. A good sermon is one which not only applies the meaning of a particular text, but also explains the meaning of that text to the congregation. And this is what the minister must do. He must teach his congregation how they must live in light of what the Word of God says. But that's not enough. The minister must not only teach formally in the preaching, but also he must model his teaching by example. The Apostle Paul writes in our text that the Philippians were to put into practice the things that they heard and saw in him. Now, as we've already observed, these two verbs relate to Paul's manner of life. Paul here is commanding the Philippians to follow his example. And we say something similar in other writings. In Philippians 3, verse 17, he writes, Brethren, join in following my example. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 16, he writes, Therefore I urge you, imitate me. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, imitate me, Paul writes. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 7, Paul says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. Now, at first reading, such statements may seem rather surprising, even somewhat shocking. After all, was Paul not a sinner like us? How then can he hold himself up as an example to follow? 
Isn't that somewhat proud, even arrogant? Well, first of all, we must understand that the Apostle Paul never claimed to be perfect. Neither does any true minister of the gospel of Christ. In fact, in Philippians 3 verse 12, the Apostle Paul admits freely that he had not already attained or he was not already perfect. But, he says, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Furthermore, in Romans 7 verse 19, he bears his soul to us when he tells us that within him there dwells no good thing. He writes, for the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Yes, the Apostle Paul knew that he was not perfect. He knew that he was still a sinner, although one saved by grace. But he also knew that he had advanced further along the path of godliness than most others, including the Philippians, which ought to be true of any minister of the gospel. What is more, he was also very conscious of the fact that the Philippians should follow him only insofar as he followed Christ. You see, Christ is the ultimate model. He is the ultimate example. Paul was merely the understudy, the pupil. But insofar as he imitated Christ, he urged the Philippians to imitate him. Now, the same is true for ministers today. And not just ministers, but all who are in positions of leadership and authority. Elders, deacons, teachers, and even parents. Their task is not only to teach what it means to live a godly life, but also to model it in their everyday lives. As mentioned earlier, these two things go together. Those who teach, like ministers and parents and teachers, must ensure that what they teach is lived out in their lives. If they don't do that, if they say one thing and do another, if they command those who are under them to live a certain way, and they do not live that way themselves, if they fail to practice what they preach, in other words... And then those whom they are called to teach will only become cynical and may even abandon the faith altogether. Now that's sadly especially true for young people. Young people are watching older people all the time, especially in the church. They want to see if what they say they also do. They want to see Christianity lived out practically in their everyday lives. And if they don't see that, they'll get turned off. How many countless young people have left the church because they've been turned off by negative examples, whether that's their parents or their teachers or their elders or sadly, even their pastors. And therefore, let us take heed, beloved. If you are in a position of authority or leadership over others, if you are an office bearer in the church, if you're a teacher or a parent, take heed how you live. Strive to set a godly example at home, in the church, at school, on Sundays, and also during the week. Live in such a way that you can say with the Apostle Paul without reservation, hesitation, or qualification, 
the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. But we also learn something else here. We learn not only what is the task of the minister, we also learn what is the task or the responsibility of the congregation. And that brings me to my second point. We've seen that the minister is required by God to teach formally and by his example what it means to live a godly life. But the congregation also has a task. The task of the congregation is to put what the minister says into practice. Not because the minister says they should, but because God says they should. Assuming, of course, that the minister is faithfully preaching the word of God and not his own opinion. Paul writes, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. The Greek word that Paul uses here is not the usual Greek word for do. The word Paul uses here is prasso, from which we get the English word practice. The emphasis in this word tends to view the action of the verb as a process rather than as completed. And so the sense is practice rather than just do. It's also in the imperative mood. That means it's a command. And what is more, it's in the present tense. And that means it describes an ongoing action. So we could translate, keep on doing or keep on putting into practice these things. The importance of doing is repeatedly emphasized in the scriptures, especially in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus compares the man who hears his words and does them to a wise man who built his house on the rock. He says, And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. In Matthew 12, verse 50, Jesus says that his brother and sister and mother are those who do the will of his Father in heaven. In Luke 11, verse 28, he pronounced a blessing on those who hear the word of God and keep it. And in Luke 12, verse 47, he warns that the servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. In Matthew 5, verse 19, he says that those who break one of the least of these commandments and teach men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And in John 15, verse 14, Jesus says, You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. But perhaps the most well-known passage in this connection is James 1, verse 21 to 25. There the apostle writes, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So James here emphasizes the importance of doing. It reminds us that it is not enough just to hear the word. We also must do it. The one who hears the word but does not do it, he says, is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror. He sees his face, it's an exact replica of the real thing, but when he goes away, the image disappears. And he himself forgets what he looks like, or rather, he does not think about it anymore. 
But the man who hears and does the word of God, he is the man who will be blessed. Now, why is doing so important? Because when God commands something, he expects and deserves to be obeyed. That only makes sense. Children, when your mom or dad asks you to do something, you do it, right? I hope you do. If you don't, you'll get into trouble, won't you? You might even have to be disciplined. Now, this is even more true when it comes to God. God is our creator. He is the one who made us and gave us life. For what purpose? Well, to serve and to glorify him. But when we do not do what he says, we do not live up to the purpose for which he created us. And that makes God angry, and rightly so. That's why obedience is so important. If we do not obey God, we do not live up to the purpose for which we have been created. What is more, we bring upon ourselves his wrath and his condemnation. Well, let me ask you, what about you today? Are you putting into practice what the minister teaches you out of the word of God? I fear that's not the case for many people today. I fear sometimes that some, perhaps even many, come to church, but that's about it. They listen to the sermon, and they may even speak a bit about it afterwards. They may even compliment the minister on a good sermon. But there's no change. The sins that were exposed, they keep on committing. The path that was laid out before them, they refuse to follow. The duties that were explained to them, they fail to perform. And why is that? Well, it's because most people are lazy. They can't be bothered. They're willing to listen to the sermon. They're willing to come to church. But they're not willing to put it into practice. They're like the sluggard, the lazy man in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about sluggards. Perhaps the most well-known passage can be found in Proverbs chapter 6, the verses 6 through 11. There King Solomon urges the sluggard to study the ant. Go to the ant, you sluggard, he says. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. Solomon here observes that the ant is a very tiny creature, but it is very diligent. And it knows that winter is coming. And when it does, there will not be much to eat. So what does the tiny ant do? Well, he works. He works from sunup to sundown, gathering food, not for the here and now, not for the present, but for the future, for the cold, hard winter yet to come. Now compare that to the sluggard. What does the sluggard do? Well, he also knows that winter is coming, but instead of working, he sleeps. And when someone calls him to get out of bed and get to work, he says, just a little while longer, a little sleep. A little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. But what will happen to such a man? Well, before he even realizes it, he will be reduced to poverty. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. 
Oh, my friend, do not be like the sluggard, but put into practice the things that you hear. If you do, you will grow. If you don't, you will not grow, and you will suffer the consequences. Paul, therefore, points to himself as a model for regulating godly practice. But he also presents a precious promise as if to motivate us to pursue after godly practice. And that brings us to our third and final point. Those who do what God commands of us are the recipients of a precious promise. What is that promise? Paul tells us. He writes in our text, The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And now comes the promise, And the God of peace will be with you. Now, Previously in verse 7, Paul spoke of the peace of God. He writes, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, as we learned several weeks ago, the peace of God is that settled peace that God works in our hearts by the Holy Spirit assuring us that he is with us, that he's under control, and that he will direct all things to accomplish his sovereign purposes. But here in our text, Paul inverts what he said. Instead of referring to the peace of God, he now refers to the God of peace. Now this phrase, God of peace, is a favorite one of Paul's. A.W. Pink observes, and I quote, only once in all the scriptures is he specifically designated the God of love, and only once the God of all grace. Yet five times he is called the God of peace. And we have an example of that here in our text. Paul speaks of God as the God of peace. Now it's possible that in doing so, and some commentators have pointed this out, that Paul is forming a contrast to the great emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the emperor who ruled the Roman Empire at the time of the birth of Christ. Because there were few wars during his reign, he is credited with ushering in the so-called Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. He also styled himself as a god and invited the citizens of the empire to worship him. But now the Apostle Paul declares that the real god of peace is not Caesar Augustus, or any of his followers, but the God of the Christians. What is more, the peace that he offers is far greater than the peace offered by Caesar Augustus. The peace that Caesar Augustus achieved was only temporary, but the peace that God offers is permanent and eternal. Now you say, what is that peace? Well, it's the peace that God effected between himself and his people through his Son, Jesus Christ. In paradise, God and man enjoyed perfect peace and communion with each other. But when man fell into sin, he broke this peace, and now instead of peace, there is enmity and warfare. But from all eternity, God in his infinite mercy devised a way whereby this peace could be restored, and it is by faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. God sent his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, into the world in order to pay the penalty for our sin. And he did that when he died on the cross. And when we believe on him, God regards us as though we had never sinned. 
And as a result, there is peace. Peace between God and man. And now Paul says, this same God, this God of peace, will be with us if we do what he says. The God of peace will be with you. And this is nothing less than astounding. The God whom we worship and adore and serve, the God of peace, is absolutely holy. And as such, he can have nothing whatsoever to do with sinful people like you and like me. He is and always must remain far removed from them. But in Christ, God draws near. He is with us through his Holy Spirit who dwells in the hearts of his people. Now that same promise comes to us today. If we do what the word of God says, if we don't just think about it, if we don't just meditate upon it, if we don't just hear the word, but also do the word, then this promise will be ours. The God of peace will be with us. He will be with us in times of happiness and in times of sadness. He will be with us in times of health and in times of sickness. He will be with us in times of riches and in times of poverty. He will be with us even unto death, so that we can say with David and Psalm 23, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now is that not a great incentive to do what God commands? What could be more wonderful than to have God with us? To have the God of peace with us? Oh, my friend, to have this God with us is the greatest and most wonderful blessing we can ever enjoy in this life. Let me ask you, do you desire that for yourself? If you don't, then something is wrong. And it may well be that you are still in your sins. Or you still have such a long way to go. Oh, may God so work in our hearts that we may desire this gift and that desiring it, we may strive more and more to walk in his ways and to do as he commands. Amen. We always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. That's www.frcna.org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed on your heart a desire to help us to offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, 
Our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can go to our webpage and make a donation right on the webpage. Our webpage, again, is banneroftruthradio.com. Please remember that the Lord would have his people come together to worship him. And for that reason, we urge you not to use this or any other radio program as a substitute for being an active, contributing member of a faithful, Bible-believing church. Thank you for listening. Now, until next week, may the Lord be with you all.